Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join today. He's a firefighter, coach, entrepreneur, and mental health advocate. It's Gary Roberts. How are you doing today, Gary? I am doing awesome, Alex. Thank you for having me on the show. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. Oh, I'm, I'm originally from Canada. I'm actually a, a sports fanatic. So I, I, in Canada, you actually have two choices. You can grow up on skates or you can grow up on skis. I grew up on skis and then was a ski fanatic and a soccer player. So put both of those together and I've pretty much almost broken every bone of my body at least once to be doing one of those sports. So <laughs> that's what I was like when I was young. Parents couldn't, parents were always carrying my own medical records around with me. It was much faster. <laughs> what made you choose skis over skates? Well, my dad, I guess he skied and he didn't skate. So plus I'm a terrible skater. That's, you know, it, I was one of those guys, you know, that you, you, you used to call the uh, back then, like I'm telling my age, I'm a little old now, but back then they used to have the enforcers. I would go in one direction to hit one guy and that was my big play of the game. That was it. Done. Out. As <laughs> Go one way, can't stop. I use the guy to stop. That's how it is. But on skis, I could pretty much do anything. So, Is there like a signature place you skied at growing up? Uh, back in Canada, there is the, I was in the East coast in Montreal. And so there was actually the Laurentians in where we used to go skiing. There was five ski mountains, ski mountains in all in one little district. So the town had maybe 1500 people in it, but during the weekends, 50,000, 65,000 people would show up because, you know, you got five ski hills and all the restaurants. So it ended up being a, a very interesting childhood as growing up. You mentioned that you your parents brought your medical records around because you were breaking bones and stuff. What, when you were skiing or playing sports, was it more that kind of rebellious adventure side that maybe led to those injuries? Or did you just enjoy and those injuries happened? No, it, it was a full out. Uh, I gave 110% each time and it didn't matter what happened. It was, you know, I, I was I was I was there. I was there for the moment. I would go full out. And whatever happened, happened. And most of the time, something broke. What was the hardest injury that you dealt with? The hardest injury I dealt with was I fell off a ski lift about 30 feet in the air, landed on a patch of ice and broke my femur at 10 years old. And it went straight up into my hip. And I was in basically in back then there was no putting rods in. So I was in traction for about six months. <clears throat> which was a pain because every time they want to change the bandage, the bone would go slide back upward and they had to pull it back. And then after that, I was in a body cast for another six months. But, you know, the body cast wasn't that bad because I figured out how to play soccer in a body cast. I could be goalie. I could just follow her <laughs> sideways, which, which again, would put the persona on how I was, was like when I was a child. You know, when you're in a body cast, your parents don't want you seeing playing sports outside, falling sideways, going, what are you doing? <laughs> you're already in a body cast. <laughs> could you not just heal first? Did you ever think about like not doing these sports again? Cause you don't want to risk another injury or you mentioned how you kind of in like, you took the kind of a negative and you kind of took it as a positive and kind of just dealt with it. Never. That's basically my persona on how I do everything and how I've created everything in my life. It, there was, I viewed it more as a challenge, mm -hmm. you know? So let's say like, again, a body cast, how can I play soccer? Okay. I can play goalie. I can fall sideways. Uh, I was doing freestyle. I used to do freestyle skiing like moguls and I broke my arm, which was a fluke. Cause I just fell over to the side. It wasn't anything extraordinary, like falling 30 feet. It's just one of those, Oh, look, I'm falling sideways. Put your hand out wrist snaps. <laughs> oh. But then, but then again, uh, two weeks later on pain pills, my arm in a cast, I ended up doing a freestyle competition with one arm in a cast. It didn't matter. As long as I could do what I wanted to do and then what I love to do, I was going to do it anyways. I think a lot of people need that kind of mentality. Just go do what you love doing and go enjoy and have fun. Don't start like second guessing yourself because that's where you're like, I don't want to do this. And then you regret over time saying, I wish I did that in the long run. You become, you become average. So yeah. I was, I was never that average kid. I was According to my parents, a pain in the ass, but I was, <laughs> I was never average. I was like, there was something that I was going to do. It didn't matter what the consequences were. You know, it, it's what I was. It's how I was and how I still am. Growing up, did you have anyone in your life that was kind of a motivator or an inspiration for you? Uh, you know what? No, 
to be honest. Well, I can't say no. So I got in. When you hurt yourself and break bones and stuff, you start learning how to to recover and rehab stuff. And so it led me into, you know, and I wasn't a skinny kid. I was a little chubby. So it led me into the gym. So I would say my inspirations were more like the Arnold Schwarzeneggers at the time, the Lou Ferrigno's at the time that would teach you, you know, again, if you ever watched uh, Pumping Iron, you know, when you're on top of the hill, you know, you're the king of the mountain. You're going to try to stay whatever you are, the king of the mountain, but the journey is getting up that mountain. So that they kind of led me up that, that no matter what happened in life, there is always a solution. There's always a way. It may not be the way you want it. It may not be the, the best choice, but if it gets you to where you're going to try to get, then you know what? It might be a choice you want or an option you might want to take. With having those influences and those specific people, were you trying to go in that route or just being able to be in the gym and kind of just figure out what challenges you can succeed at, that was the end goal. I think the more the end goal was no matter what I tried, I always tried to be the best at. So if I went to the gym, I wanted to be like, you know, the strongest guy in the gym or, mm-hmm. or be like the other guys. You see most people in gyms right now, it's, we we still laugh because they were like, okay, so they wouldn't work out their legs. So they have these really skinny legs and these really big bodies on top. And they would, you know, totally, you know, because everybody could see the arms and chest and everything else. Well, I was the opposite. My legs from skiing and playing soccer were already pretty big. And that's one of my most powerful things. So I just decided to create more power with them. So I was the other way around. While people were benching 300, I was squatting 300. So it was like, you know, that was my forte. So I'm like, okay, you guys do that way. Just come join me when you're ready. I'll be over here by the squat rack. You guys go over there, you know. So it's just finding the niche that you're good at, finding the niche that you can excel at, and then just go ahead and drive through whatever comes in your way. As you're getting older, did you ever find any new passions or something that you enjoyed besides skiing, soccer, those kind of activities? Uh, I was always sports oriented. So between my last injuries in soccer were in high school, I was actually getting a, uh, I had a scholarship to play soccer at college and I blew out a knee, lost a scholarship. And back then with socialized medicine in Canada, basically it's simple. If your knee ain't creating money for you, you're not getting the surgery. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a kid and want to, you know, want to play the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. So you're not getting the surgery. So that ruined that uh, goal. So in between, I would imagine my high school and about 20s, there was more like a, well, let's see what kind of stupid stuff I can do. Like, you know, let's jump out of airplanes. Let's go cliff jumping. Let's, you know. Let's do some weird stuff. And I, that was more my adventurous side that nobody knew about. My parents, you know, I was living alone and just finding that side. So there wasn't really any passion, except there was always that drive to find that that heart racing, thrill seeking thing. And then there's always something new that you wanted to go in. And that's where I got the opportunity to come to, to South Florida. And I said, OK, well, here's a new adventure. Never been there. Sold everything, did everything, came to Florida. And let's see, you know, no job. Let's see. Well, you know, I had a job, but it didn't last very long let's see what happens. And since then I, I built, uh, I ended up helping LA fitness create their first few uh, personal training studios when they moved to South Florida. So I was into personal training and then I built a few studios of my own. And then, you know, that passion, I still have it to this day because I still own a gym to this day, but then I wanted something more. And that's where I got into firefighting and that just, just became, and of course the firefighting thing wasn't about, you know, in South Florida, it's medical and fire, me was just going on busting down doors and, you know, jumping into fires. I had no idea I had to do all the the CPR stuff. So that came afterwards. So that was a surprise to me completely. But you know what? I ended up right now, I'm on the special operations hazmat team that deals with you know, stuff like dirty bombs and, you know, uh, gas, gas leaks and explosive stuff. So there's my, my thrill and excitement. Did you have a dream job? So before you blew out your knee and you didn't, you lost that scholarship, was the goal to be with soccer or become a pro athlete? Was that the path that you were heading down? That was the path I wanted. I wanted to be a, a professional soccer player. My coach was actually from England. He wanted to take us to England and, you know, meet some, meet some people out there. And, you know, I was, I was actually good at, you know, at the age of uh, 13, 14, I played in three different leagues. I played in my league, the league above mine, and then the league above that because they kept bringing me up. So I guess per se, they'd say, okay, you, you got something, kid. Let's, let's run with it. And next thing you know, injuries ended up screwing that up. So, you know, had to find something else. With moving to Florida, what was the hardest part making a huge jump 
from going from Canada to Florida? Being broke and not knowing anybody. It, 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 it like I said, it's basically you had to. I had to find my own ground. Basically, I, I ended up being one of the laborers on the corner of the street at 4 a.m., hopefully to get picked up by one of these moving companies to make ends meet. You know, I started out, but when I first, uh, my first week, I had to buy one big prime rib and cook it for the whole week. And that, that was my food. You know, you're talking to a guy that worked out every day that ate, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, 14 dozen eggs, you know, a, a week down to one prime rib for seven days, hopefully to subside. You know, a lot of people would have said, screw this, quit and went back home. But I, I never went back home, never called mommy. You know, I called mommy and told her how I was, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I'm coming home and doing it. I came here, I'm going to do something, I'm going to figure it out. And that's what I did. Do you think that taught you a lot about yourself from a work ethic standpoint that you were willing to do anything to make ends meet? I had that work ethic before, but I don't think personally I knew that I had it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I always did the work ethic, but it wasn't the mental aspect was not there. It was just do work. It didn't matter. Just do work. If you do work, you're going to get out of trouble. But when you start learning that, that's kind of like your forte that you understand that you believe in yourself so much that nothing is going to stop you. And then that's where things slowly start to change. For example, when I started doing the moving things, I went into construction. Of course, that's what normally people do. But what I ended up doing with construction is I ended up, I taught myself how to read blueprints, which then took me on to another construction site which then that whole construction I took me for a whole year and that helped me get to my next job. And that helped me introduce me to the people building the LA fitnesses and to that job. And so every time there was a learning process, a learning curve, but I had to learn it and I did to learn it to actually proceed forward. I actually like what you mentioned where in any job you try to learn as much as you can because learning that skill or that topic or that item helped you go to the next stage and you were building up where you just didn't just say, yeah, I'm just going to deal with this. I'm going to do the bare minimum. You were actually willing to learn and continue to grow because it brought you to the career path that you were hoping for and make more money and gain even more connections to eventually with the LA fitness gyms and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, and we said it before, not be not staying and being average. I was never satisfied. Let, let, let's be honest. Let's call it what it is. I was never satisfied. I was always hungry for something else. I was always hungry to be better, to, if you want to say, make more money or, or do more things. I was always driven that way. And I would do no matter whatever I had to do, whether it was learn something or do something I'd never done before, whether it was failing and reteaching myself on rehow to do it, doing it again, I would do it just so I could succeed and gain you know, further off in my life than what I, where I was. Cause I never wanted to just stay there. And I think that's, it's kind of like the same passion I have now with my, the projects that I'm doing now. It's that drive, that drive also, I'll be honest, not a lot of people have it. It's, it's a lonely, lonely road. People will tell you, you can't do it. People will tell you, you you'll never happen. People will tell you it's, you know, don't try, you'll fail, You'll, you know, you'll come to the end wits of of yourself to where you're actually talking to yourself going, why am I doing this when I can just sit back and fall on what I've already known? Why would I put myself in situations? And it's just, it's just who I am. It's, you know, it's, my wife probably doesn't like it, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Working with in constructions and then going into LA fitness with talking about your prior injuries, did that ever play an effect or were you rehabbed a hundred percent fully recovered where it didn't stop you? That made it even better because teaching myself how to rehab my body taught myself how to train other people better. Mm -hmm. It taught me how to move better. And it was a different kind of thing than just, you know, learning, you know, just lift a bunch of weights, don't eat, eat chicken and eggs and do this and do that. It was more, I ended up starting being the guy to where people goes, okay, well, I got back problems or I just had back surgery or I just had knee surgery. Well, you're going to go see this guy because this guy had everything done to himself. So he's going to be able to to help you out. And that's what ended up happening. I ended up being a specialist in, in knees and backs and shoulders to the point where I opened where I've opened my gym now. And I'm actually working with an orthopedic group where they turn me as their strength coach. Cause 
again, I'm one of those people that, that ask a lot of questions. Uh, I don't take just because you have, a, let's say, an Esquire behind your name or a doctor or a DR in front of your name doesn't mean that you know it all to me. Uh-huh. I want to know exactly why you're telling me this, how you're telling me this, what do you think about it? And, and to be honest, it pissed off a lot of people. There's, there's not very many people that actually, you know, doctors want to say, take this pill and go away. And I'd be like, why am I taking the pill for? Well, you got a back problem. Okay, so how do I fix it? He goes, well, you know what? You, you really can't do deadlifts anymore. So I would take the pen off the doctor's desk and throw it on the floor. And I would say, can you get that for me? He'd be looking at me like, I don't understand. I said, well, if I can't bend over and pick it up, who's going to pick stuff up for me? Because that's basically what a deadlift is. Mm-hmm. Can you another reason why I can't do a deadlift. Uh, you know what? I, I think our time's up. And that's what I would always get, the same thing with knee problems and all this. So when when the doctor, this Holy Cross group came up, he goes, hey, I need to talk to you. I've heard about you. I'm like, okay. So I want you to come meet my whole team. I'm like, okay. And he, we sit down and he goes, so is there anything you want to tell us first? And I says, yeah, I don't trust any of you. <laughs> 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 and he busts out laughing. He goes, and that's why I like you. I'm like, I don't believe anything you guys are saying because there is an opportunity that if you get injured, the toughest thing is actually recovery. Mm-hmm. There's no end about two things are going to happen. You will continuously have to recover and continuously have to work out for the rest of your life. It, it don't matter. It, it don't, you know, just because you have surgery or reconstructive surgery doesn't mean that you're fixed. It's, it's just, you know, all they do is make sure that the, the item is fixed, but it doesn't mean you can move properly. It doesn't mean that you can't do this properly. So you have to reteach yourself those. Well, then you need to strengthen that aspect of it. By strengthening that aspect, you have to understand how it moves and so forth and so forth. So when doctors say, don't do this, some of the times it makes absolutely no sense. And when people used to come to me and say, yeah, doctor says I can't do that. And I said, why? They would just give me this blank stare. Like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Why can't you squat? Well, he says, it's bad for my knees. Okay, how do you go to the bathroom in the morning? <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden you get that blank stare. I'm like, well, that's a squat. Oh, because they use the term squat and it's a gym thing doesn't mean it is. It's a sit down and stand. Yep. You still have to be able to do that. Let's be honest. If you can't sit down and stand, you know, it's not going to work. It's kind of like, okay, when you do your push-ups, put your push-ups, put your chest to the ground. Well, that's not how we do push-ups. Okay, well, if you fall on the ground, are you going to stop three inches from the ground or are you going to land straight on your face? I'm going to land on my face. Okay, well, then practice getting up from your face. There you go. There you, go. You, know, you know, you won't get injured. So so little things like that, as as I grew up, taught me, like, the little details made a big thing as I started moving forward in my life. Looking at your fitness journey with owning a gym and those kind of things, what's been your favorite accomplishment that you've achieved? Uh, one would be actually, for myself, just two things. For myself, returning to back to competition to where I owned a CrossFit gym. So it was a big thing. And I don't know if you know about CrossFit and the CrossFit games and all that. Well, I was never, I was like, again, I'm a competitive person between the age of 18 till about say, was it, I guess about 39, 42, somewhere around there, no competitions. It was basically just, you know, I'm bored. What do I do? How do I figure out? Am I going to hurt myself again? Am I going to break another bone, you know, blow another knee out? Do you know, by then I've blown out both two knees, you know? And so it's like, can I do this stuff? Like they're doing, like you see on CrossFit TVs. Can I do this? And I said, okay, well let's try first. And then when you start doing it again, small details make big differences. That's what I found out. And then for four years in a row, I ended up being like in the top 100 in the world in my age group, which is a super, you know, feat. At, at my age, when I was doing it between 45 and 47, you know, 45 and 47, you're not supposed to get better. You know, mm-hmm. you're supposed to, everybody goes, it's downhill after 40, you know, no, <laughs> it was, it wasn't downhill as I was getting better every year, you know, and then more injuries came and, and stuff. That's what led me into my, my new projects now. But that was one of the things. And the second thing was actually seeing people do things they never could do before. Yeah. You know, I had a, I had a lady come and see me and she goes, okay, I would like to try CrossFit. Uh, I've had neck surgeries. I'm not allowed to do anything overhead to completely participating in her first CrossFit open type thing with doing stuff overhead, you know, you know, able to move her neck by teaching her how to do stuff that her, her doctors or physical therapists never taught her to do. And all of a sudden, you know, her whole life changed and stuff like that. So the aspect of making somebody better than they really are was, was a second bonus. And, and, 
I wasn't those, how do you say it? I wasn't a nice person. Let's be honest. It's <laughs> my, my, my attitude was simple as I care so much. I will tell you the truth. So if you suck, I'm going to tell you, you suck, but I'm going to tell you how to get better, but you're probably not going to like the way I, I'm going to tell you to get better because it's going to cause you to do work. Mm-hmm. But if you put in the effort again, this is my work ethic from, from being, you know, from young to now, if you put in the effort, you will succeed period. Yep. You know, there, there, there's no pats in the backs. There's no, you know, like nowadays everybody gets a trophy to me. That's just, you know, unfortunately that's just BS to me. There's no such thing. Either you're winning or you're losing. There's no second, third, there's winning and there's losing. It, it's if you have that mindset in business life, you know, your relationships or whatever, I'm pretty sure you're going to have a pretty good run at it. Well, everyone thinks that everything is easy. They don't have to put in the work. And you mentioned all those different things. That same concept works in no matter what situation you're in, relationships, business, personal, things like that. And I've grown up where I had to put in the work to get results. And to me, you kind of enjoy putting in that work because you look back at it and you're like, wow, if I was able to achieve that, what else can I achieve next? Or can I push myself a little bit farther at the same time? So I love how you mentioned that because I use that in my life every day. Yeah, it's the big, I do a lot of things. I do a lot of audio books and stuff when I drive because I don't like listening to radios. That's how I teach myself certain things and stuff like that. But one of the greatest audio books I wrote was by, by Tim Grover, which was which was winning. I don't know if you've ever read it or whatever, but it felt like an autobiography. Basically, him telling you, basically, that's the story of winning. The winners never give up. But when they get to the top, it's not like I made it. It's like, all right, what's all? Let's get ready for next season. Yep. It's, you know, it's, there's never an end. There's always a, there's always a step. Okay. I've accomplished it. But to stay there, I need to find the next level. Yeah. I need to find the next you know, the next path, the next opportunity, the next, you know, the next thing that's going to drive it's there's no, you should never, especially in success, you should never, not, not like I'm, you know, a multimillionaire successful yet, but you should never stay where you are. Cause if you stay where you are, you are going backwards. And that's the mentality I've always had. Do you feel that your physical, mental, emotional performance helped you when you were a firefighter or while you were a firefighter? Did it kind of prepare you for any situation you were put against? Um, I believe so. It, that's kind of like a, a trick question because a lot of people don't know what we do. And mm-hmm. that's where the, the mental that's where the mental health advocacy comes in. And I try to teach people what we do. It, and the biggest, I give the biggest examples. If, if you watch movies, so I don't know if you've seen Backdraft or anything, but if you watch movies, you'll, you'll understand that if I see a war movie, I know what I'm going to see. I'm going to see people blown up. I'm going to see people shot. I'm going to see people mangled. If I see a firefighter movie, what are we going to see? We're going to see like a little dangerous stuff, you know, a little man in, in a big burning building, like, oh, I'm going to save you. And they save people and they got a little black soot in their face and nothing real. Well, what we really see is what you see in the war movie. And that's what we see when we go into a burning building. For example, what I tell people is that when I go to a burning to save somebody, that person's been cooking in a, uh, a microwave or oven at a 1400 degrees. They're not, you know, basically put together properly. When we pull them out, their skin comes off with them. That skin gets stuck to our gloves, gets stuck to our nose. We breathe it. We try to help the people out. They're screaming. You still smell burnt skin, burnt hair, burnt everything. That is one call out of one day that you signed up for for 30 years of your life. Mm-hmm. You can see two of those calls in one day. You can go to that call and then go to drown, draining, drowning baby, to back to a guy that's been T-boned on a motorcycle. That's not what people think firefighters do. They see the happy-go-lucky, bring my dad to school. Here's what I do. I'm a firefighter. Yay. Look, the stuff we see is real. Imagine your worst nightmare. We see everybody's worst nightmare on a daily basis for 30 years. Even the Army and the Special Forces and the military, they have four-year sections. They can go out. They can continue, you know, four to six years. They can continue if they want, but they don't have to. It all depends on what we it's it. You have to do a minimum of 20 years. 
Otherwise, you don't get to your final goal, which is the retirement and the pension and everything else. So most people, a lot of people I've seen sign up that got hired, hired, they go there to first call to where, uh, you know, a, a limb's missing and that's it. They're done. They quit. It's not something they were ready for. So us, we spend 30 years desensitizing, which causes a lot of issues, family issues. You know, you get to be called like you're not empathetic. You know what I'm saying? It's not that we're not empathetic. It's that we're used to the, there is no emergency we're not ready for. So we will not freak out. Mm-hmm. It is straight, honest, cold truth, fix, move forward, move on. Next, let's go have lunch. And that builds up in in, in the mental health and, and more or less in a lot of firefighters and police officers. And that's why suicide so rampant in our industry. Did that job play an effect in your personal life? Uh, I believe it does. It, it's very, again, uh, I'm basically, it's not that I'm not a, a, a sensitive person. Uh, some people feel that we, I don't have feelings, but it's because it's a, We've t- trained ourselves to not have them, if that kind of makes sense, because we can't freak out where everybody else is freaking out. So it makes it extremely difficult trying to empathize with, you know, with my wife sometimes, with my kids sometimes. Uh, I lost my daughter to an opiate overdose, and, you know, I see overdoses on a daily basis that I bring these people back, that I wonder why the firefighters couldn't bring my own daughter back when I do this constantly on a daily basis you know the guy's not breathing he's blue but we bring him back anyways so that does play on my mind that's why we started creating the the project in costa rica that we're creating for for first responders and and veterans and everything else but yeah it's it's difficult because our patients wear it's not you know it's it's the stuff that we see every day is not is not normal it's not it's not something somebody should see on a daily basis you talked about how once you sign, you have to do those years and how some people they'll go to their first call, they'll quit. Has there ever been a time where you thought maybe I need to not do this anymore and go in a different direction or you are committed to what you signed up for? No, there's just different avenues in the fire service that I decided to take where I don't have to see as much of it. So mm-hmm. basically the fire service you got in, in our fire service, you got you got rescue units that care for the patients through a lot. And then you got like with the trucks, I am a squad, which is more a, a rapid response to uh hazmat incidents and stuff. We do see the major incidents with, with the rescue, but we're not per se taking care of them of that full length of time. So in other words, it would take probably the rescue an hour. We would help package the patient, drop them off in the rescue, and then we'd be done. So mm-hmm. we'd see the initial onset, but it wouldn't be constant, but there's not much of it that we say. We see a lot more of, like I said, the gas leaks, the fires and stuff like that. That's the stuff we see now. So it moved away from the medical stuff aspect. So I don't have to see a lot of it, but it's still there. You know, like again, finding that niche to where we can move forward and do something else and train ourselves and move forward and stuff like that. That's, that's what I did. You just talked about how when people watch movies and TV shows based on your career path and how it's all kind of, it ends in a good story in a way. Do you feel that those TV shows, those movies need to be more realistic on what is going on for people to really understand the job that you guys do? Or is there another way that people can learn and really understand it better? I believe so. And that's what I've, I've basically done. I've, I've created like, you know, I've created the good dudes pro podcast just for that. But I believe, yeah, there should be a, a movie about the real stuff that goes on. You know, it's extremely hard to do it because I don't think people want to ruin that image of what they, they, they see. You know, they want to keep that image separate of war is war and firefighters are heroes. They don't want to see, you know, the bad stuff that they go through, the, the mental illness, the the drinking that they use to go to sleep, or the chemicals they take to help them sleep, or 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 the the you know all that stuff that people don't know about. That's that's rampant in our industry. You know, alcoholism, divorce, suicide, addiction. That's rampant because the stuff we see, you know, we want to numb it. We want to, mm-hmm. you know, we can't sleep. Our schedules are weird. We're twenty four hours, and you get calls at all different hours. So sometimes you don't sleep. Sometimes you do sleep. But when you do sleep, you sleep only an hour. So just the non sleeping affects the body and the brain in a different way. That that you know, for thirty years, it becomes, you know, so so 
tough to deal with. And you're, you're, you're with the same people, the same group of guys for like 20 years. So then when you retired, all of a sudden you're cut off and you can't see these people anymore. It's kind of like, you know, it's your second family. So now you're all alone. You don't know where to go, who to talk to, but you still can't sleep. You still have the nightmares. You're still drinking. You're still, so we need to teach people that, you know, the firefighters and police officers and first responders, they go through a lot. For example, the COVID, you know, we heard everybody like all the people on the front line and we have all the nurses and doctors. Well, that wasn't the front line. That was the line behind the firefighters mm-hmm. and the EMS people. The front line were the people who got the call that we did not know if they had COVID. We didn't know when COVID came in. We had no idea what they're coughing on us because they won't tell us. And we have no idea whether they have, you know, you know, what it what what bad diseases they have or they're puking on us and stuff. We have no idea. That's the front line. We, you know, we're in a we're not in a a safe zone like hospitals have the safe buildings with all the you know all the ventilations and all the lights and everything else we're it's midnight it's pitch black you have no idea where you're stepping in you have no idea what's going on the house is a disaster you don't know if there's a dog gonna attack you you know that's the front line those are the things we need to tell the people about first responders and that's where the front line starts those guys if they don't do their job properly you will not survive the second person is the hospital we have to make sure we do our job first that's why you know we deal with so much, but nobody knows about it. We're just the heroes again. Like you take your dad to school kind of thing. And like, Oh, look, my dad's a hero. He's, you know, he's a firefighter. Yay. Let's play with his hose. <laughs> For our audio listeners, they're probably not seeing your background right now, but it's a cool background with the flames kind of like our mascot, which is a Phoenix. Talk about good dudes grow. And how did that become something? Well, Good News Grow started, uh, basically, like I, I said before, my daughter uh, passed away from an opioid overdose. She was in a car car accident, and she got addicted to opioids. And we started investigating plant-based medicine like uh, like cannabis or something that can, she can use besides opiates. And back then, it wasn't actually legal in the state of Florida at that time, so we're still investigating it. And by the time we, we found uh, a uh, viable hemp CBD product, which is what we want to do because we didn't want to go down to medical marijuana license that aspect as of yet because that was still being built in in Florida. I started investigating that because I was going through some pain because I was, like I said, as being an athlete, I had ended up having double Achilles tendonitis, which is extremely painful if you've ever had it. But I had it in both feet. It's kind of like walking on shards of glass 24-7. Add that to having 80 pounds of gear on my back. It wasn't a friendly thing. And I had it for a year. I was sucking down a thousand milligrams of Aleve three times a day for over a year. And, you know, it wasn't that wasn't conducive to my liver. So this would also help me out in the same time. So I tried a bunch of stuff and, you know, being one of those people in the fitness industry, we try stuff like if it tastes bad, it's got to work. Right. You know, it tastes (laughs) like crap. It's got to work. Well, this stuff tasted like crap and it didn't work. It's, you know, I tried all this stuff. It didn't work. Finally, uh, I met a holistic doctor. She says, you got to try this. I says, no, you know, it's all crap. It's just a way to get money out of people. It's another, it's another snake oil. She goes, just try it. I'm like, okay. So I tried it on myself. And within, I would say 20 minutes, my pain went from an eight to a three. Wow. Of course, my wife says that's impossible. You're a complete moron. You'll buy anything. <laughs> probably a placebo effect. You know, and I'm like, all right, okay, you're probably right. So I went to the gym and I don't recommend this for anybody to do this on a, a double Achilles tendon. I started jumping rope. Oh, just to see again, this is me. This is how I do things. <laughs> don't, don't do this. Don't follow my example. But I wanted to see if it actually really worked. And the pain never went back up. The pain after when I stayed on it, pain actually went away. So we got in contact with the farm and we started creating. I wanted to create a, my own line, which I do have for firefighters, first responders, and everything else, so that we wouldn't get fired. Something without THC in it. Cause back then it was still the whole battle of, you know, was it THC, not THC? You know, nobody knew, you know, everybody was trying to sell something, makes it make a dollar. I was just more interested in helping people and get that. So by the time we got that done, unfortunately, on my daughter's 27th birthday, she passed away. Her goal was to create a, a, a project that we could actually change opiates into a health and holistic way using plant-based medicine and do that and revamp the whole uh, addiction recovery process. Because she decided to go put herself into rehab. And what she found out was that while she was in rehab, they put her on more medication. And when she left rehab, they added more medication. So it really didn't get her off anything. It just gave her a substitute for what she was on. So that this was all her concept and her idea. And that's what we started down. We started down that path. At the same time, I provided this product to a couple of firefighters who had some pain. 
And within two days or three days after they were on it, they would, they called me up and said, one of them called me up and said, Hey, listen, uh, I don't know what you gave me. And then I went, Oh my God, what happened? Did you get, did you get busted on a drug test? Cause this was all new for us. We're still trying to figure it out, but we knew our products had no THC, but just in case I'm like, did you, you know, pop a drug test? He's like, no, 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 that that's all cool. He goes, but uh, I've been having uh, nightmares, not being able to sleep. Uh, I've been extremely upset with my family. Can't stand my kids. After three or four days on your product, those voices in my head subsided. They're still there, but they're not there all the time. Wow. Now you got to understand, you know, police officers, military firefighters, we're all type A personalities. We're not just going to tell you how we feel again, mm-hmm. back to our, our, our mentality of we've taken our feelings and controlled them. We're not just going to let you know how we feel. You know, you're going to have to drag yeah. that out of us no matter what, you know? So I went, okay, so this is interesting. So now all of a sudden this stuff actually helps, you know, some mental health issues and stuff like that. So let me bring it to the fire department and say, hey, listen, let's, we need to really investigate allowing us to use the one that's federally legal with a little bit of THC in it so that we don't get fired. Uh, So I went to the union and the union told me basically go pound sand. That's never going to happen. I don't care what you say, not going for it. I'm like, okay, well, you know, you're not going to do it. So I want to go to the the management chiefs and all that. And they says, not a chance Forget it. We're not letting you do this because we don't want you all being stoned. And it's like, okay, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but you know, okay, go to human resources, talk to them. They're like, no, we're not, we don't want, we have no idea what you're talking about. And so I had three doors slammed in my face and I said, okay, I've been doing this for a while underneath the radar because technically our contract says I'm not allowed to sell contraband. Technically it's not contraband, but they think it is contraband. So I'm like, okay, so this is not good. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just, let's just come out and, and, and do it. And I said, what's the best way to, that I can open conversations? I said, let's create a podcast. Never done this before. I have no idea what I'm doing. I said, let's create something. We call it, I said, let's call it good dudes grow. Basically, you know, firefighters who are actually talking about mental health and different options that we have besides, you know, pharmaceutical medications, because we all know uh, antidepressants, their side effects are suicide. We have enough issues with suicide. We don't want to start giving firefighters more stuff that could give them more suicidal tendencies. And the last thing we want to do is give them like muscle relaxers so they're just so numb they can't do their jobs. So how are we going to do that? Well, let's talk. Let's talk to people. So I said, well, who are we going to talk to? And I said, I said, well, the closest thing to our category would basically be a military people be uh, professional athletes because professional athletes, their career depends on them being normal. So if I get professional athletes who are now using this type of stuff and are still normal, then it's a conversation that we should have. So I've got like uh, Kyle Turley on my show and I got a couple of professional football players, a couple of NHL uh, Stanley Cup, you know, people that won a Stanley Cup, a couple of Super Bowl champions that are now, you know, advocates of this kind of stuff. And then I said, okay, well, let's make it more interesting. Let's look at celebrities. Well, who can we talk to? Well, who's the number one person talking about pot in the world? You know, everybody say pot celebrity. What do you got? You got Cheech and Chong, right? So they're, <laughs> they're infamous for it. So I was able to get actually Tommy Chong on my show. So we got him on my show. It was only the ninth show. And I had no idea these people would actually come on, but then all these people started coming on. Then physicians started coming on and people started having me on, on their podcast to talk about what I was doing. And all of that started 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 happening. The coolest thing in the, is that by having this conversation with everybody else, my department started knowing what I was doing and started having the conversation. Well, three years after my, you know, a year after my podcast started, three years total, well, right now, I'm actually helping my department renegotiate the contract on the drug policy on how the testing is done so that we can get access to the federally legal CBD and hemp. Wow. So from all those doors being shut from the podcast, creating a podcast, all those doors actually opened. And that was, that was the greatest thing. In fact, they actually created a committee and health and wellness committee using cannabis and hemp. And I'm actually the co-chairman of that committee to help our firefighters get access to help teach them how to use it, teach the departments what's being done, how they can control the aspect of them not using, you know, uh, cannabis to get high and everything else, which is kind of ridiculous because, you know, we can use anything else. We can use, you know, 
amphetamines and as long as we have prescriptions we can use whatever you know adderall you know opiates drink ourselves to death we can do whatever we want but you know they're afraid of somebody just smoking you know smoking or taking a gummy on their days off to help them sleep they're like oh my god the world's coming to an end he touched a gummy you know and here's a bottle of wild turkey we'd rather you have that it's, it's it makes absolutely no sense so that's that's how the, the good news grow podcast started that's how everything you know began with the fire department and that led to our costa rica rica project that we're actually looking at creating right now have you gotten reactions from people who have no connection with military, firefighters, police force, anything like that? And what has been their reaction to the information they're hearing from your guests or your story, your guys' stories that you're sharing? Uh, they weren't, they were never, they weren't aware. It's basically, it's basically helping remove the stigma. They, they, you know, it's open to conversation to everybody to, you know, to uh, the elderly who thought that, you know, it's better to take this this box of pills instead of actually taking the edible or it's open a conversation to physicians who never thought about using this a, a, as a remedy. It's not even as far as right now with all the, let's say, you see the accidental, I'm not going to say overdoses, but the accidental intoxication of, you know, kids using too much or getting their hands on mom's chocolates, you know, and the... the the old edible idea, so everybody understands. When you take an edible, it's going to take about two hours to hit you. So if you take an edible, you might want to wait for two hours before you decide to take another one. Don't yeah. take another one in a half hour. Don't take another one in a half hour of that because in two hours, you're going to be riding one hell of a roller coaster. <laughs> but what most people don't get is that I, what I've tried to get to start a department is that if you're having that roller coaster with, with cannabis, if you take pure CBD and use it, it'll slowly bring down that roller coaster. It'll contra contra effect the, of the psychoactive effects. It'll bring it down. So it's stuff like that where our, our physicians or our medical directors are looking at like, you know, instead of doing the whole workup to where you start IVs and, you know, do Narcans and stuff, because you know what they are. If you really know that the person's taking, you know, cannabis and he's never done it before and you just give him some CBD and relax, then, you know, we don't have to give him a $1,800, $2,400, you know, the hospital bill. It's, you know, it's a $40, you know, bottle or a hundred dollar bottle of CBD oil. They're, they're, they're good to go. So, you know, those conversations end up happening. And, and that, that's the best thing is that people are not talking about, it, especially what firefighters are going through. That's, that's one of the biggest things. There's a lot of people are starting to understand because a lot of people, again, like I told you, do, do not know what we go through. So those conversations are happening. Uh, the mental health conversations happening. There's, there's a bigger, conversation in the fire departments about the mental health with the families with the family members so they understand what's happening there's no longer just a poster on the wall saying hey if you don't feel good and you want to hurt yourself call this number because that's never going to happen we all know that that's you know it just makes no sense because that's not what we do you know I think the biggest thing is not being aware of it. My dad was an EMT firefighter when I, but I was young at that time, but I never got to really know what he went through. So hearing you say that people who aren't in it are not aware of it and now they're getting the opportunity to learn more. I think that's what's needed because people need to be educated so that they can help others if they're in situations like that. And we can all be a huge support system for each other. You talked about the Costa Rica project. What specifically is the mission of that project and what are you trying to help with that? Well, one of the biggest things we, when we were investigating the options for plant-based medicine and slowly into psychedelics on, on, on how it helps with mental health was we needed to educate the person who wants to use it first, mm-hmm. but the person who wants to use it for everybody who knows they're going to go, well, I want to talk to my doctor first, of course. That's, yeah. that's that's normal. But then you go to their doctor, the doctor says, well, I know nothing about it. Don't do it. And so now we can't get to them because their doctor is stopping it. So we are going to get to the doctor. Well, how do we get to the doctor? Well, the doctor is not going to listen unless we get to a doctor's association. Well, the doctor's association is not going to listen until we get some sort of fundamental study or clinical data on that. That's not going to happen until the FDA decides to actually allow that stuff because it's still an illegal substance. To get the legal substance, it's to, to test illegal, to train on illegal substance. There's a big, you know, red tape and, and so forth. Research is not happening fast enough for the people who want access. The only people who are getting access right now are people who are at end of life. So in other words, you're dying. They're going to give you an opportunity to smoke a joint, which is completely retarded because, you know, the last thing you want to do is wait till I die to feel good. Mm-hmm. I want to enjoy my life, 
Yes, the people who are dying, it can help them. It will help them feel good. Yes, but it shouldn't be a end of life medication. It should be a, pre- a preventative medication so that the people who are doing the jobs, like the military first responders, don't have to go through the suicidal tendencies and wait till it's the last resort. It may or may not work kind of thing. So what we decided to do is says, well, let's create a facility. Let's create a five-star resort where we can treat these people, where the resort is a data collection site. So that it collects real-time data on people who are going to use cannabis and psychedelics underneath a research and medical framework, which we can also use to actually create clinical data with the country of Costa Rica and build that so that we can provide the FDA with protocols as these medications roll out. The reason why I think that's an awesome idea is, A, we can create preventative uh substances so basically like for for one of the things is uh mdma maps is second trial came out says mdma 67 percent of the people who did it says they're no longer uh clinically diagnosed as having ptsd so it's no longer masking the issues it's actually curing the people from their their mental trauma if we can get firefighters first responders veterans who are actively in duty to -hmm. go and use these sessions Maybe we won't have that huge build up that'll cause that suicidal tendency down the road. Let's do a one year, you know, checkup and everything else. But uh, the problem with that is that it's not the medication that does it. it it's it's a it's a com- combination of the psychotherapy plus the medication plus the intention plus understanding. So there's a group of things that work together. And we just don't want to decriminalize everything. Said, here you go, pop this pill, you'll be fine. Because chances are you won't be fine. It could mm-hmm. cause a huge side effect issue. If you have suicidal tendencies and you decide to take MDMA and you're already suicidal, well, the MDMA is going to actually, for those who don't know, MDMA is actually ecstasy. It'll enhance those suicidal tendencies. That's what ecstasy does. You know, if you're if you're kind of like you know. You're horny and you take ecstasy, it's going to make you hornier. If you're angry and take ecstasy, it's going to make you angrier. So it enhances the feelings you're feeling at that moment. So we need to make sure that the people who are using these substances know what they're going to use, has the intention of what they need, talk to them first and prepare them for the journey they're going to go on. And then afterwards, what they end up seeing through these medications, whether it's cannabis, psychedelics, or VR or anything else, have a place to go after they've done it. So they can actually keep working through what they saw and what they learned and everything else to make sure that it actually is a long-term effect on it. So that's what we're building on in Costa Rica. We actually have a an appointment with the deputy minister of health in a couple of weeks to talk with them just to get backing from the country. Uh, we got a lot of partners from uh, Canada, the UK, uh, Australia, who are, are backing the project because, again, Costa Rica is a great place to go. It's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place. Uh, the medical system is exactly the same as Health Canada and the United States. There's a lot of people who go there for medical procedures because it's one third of the cost of the United States. You know, so it's it's super super cheap with the higher qualifications. So we said, let's build this facility there. Then we'll take those things and bring it back to the United States and teach everybody what we were taught, and hopefully that we can build these these super wellness clinics where it's everything from a nutrition, fitness, mental health type style, preventative medicine to where we can benefit the country of those who need. So when you're not working, you're not doing fitness, what is something fun you like to do? A lot of our listeners love to really learn more about the person nowadays. What do you like to do for fun? That is fun to me. That's the problem. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that answer. <laughs> it's, it's the excitement is pushing myself in the gym to see what I can do. Right now, I'm still. I just had knee surgery. I, I broke an elbow. You know, I'm trying to get back. So that's my fun. Trying to get back to where I was before, and it's just a drive of of creating something that other people need. That is my fun. That that that's what I want to see happen. That's there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing. You know that's. I don't go out and party. I don't go. There's really my party is helping other people. That's that's what I want to do. That's that's my fun. My fun is seeing other people succeed. As weird as that sound, or as sometimes people say, you know, you're you're the worst person to work for. It's not that I'm the worst person to work for. I strive for everybody to be better, and that means everybody's got to work together. Whether you want to come with me or not, if you jump on the wagon, we're going it, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. It may not be fun, be one hell of a ride, though, but that's 
that that's my basically my intensity and my fun. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? A, just do it. B, don't expect to do it all at once. And C, start. Know where you want to go. Start by taking that first step. Because every step you take towards that goal, whether it's sideways or forward, never backwards. Sometimes you will go backward, but as long as you still see the forward step about going backward, because you always have to reevaluate. Mm-hmm. Reevaluating doesn't mean you're stopping. Reevaluating is just shifting what you're doing to make sure you get to that forward movement. And those small steps are actually always big wins. And as long as you are winning, it'll be a lot better to overcome the losses that you get. For example, I tell a lot of people that make a big joke about it. It says, can you do a pull-up? Yes. It's okay. Well, I need you to do a hundred. And they all look at me and goes, you're crazy. I can't do a hundred pull-ups. No, you can. You just told me you can do one. If you do one at a time, sooner or later, you'll get to a hundred. Yep. Doesn't mean you're going to get there fast. It doesn't mean you're going to, you're not going to, you're not going to be there, but you will get there. It'll start to get tough, but if you don't give up and reevaluate hand grip uh, positioning, again, you will still get there. So taking those small steps, whether it doesn't matter what it is, just starting, opening the business is a small step. Just writing down what you want to do is a small step. Waking up the, in the morning and doing one thing that propels your your goal forward is a win. And as long as you keep winning, you're, you'll get to where you want to go. Winning is winning is the key. Again, like I said, there's no it's either winning or you're losing. There's no standing still. Well, Gary, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people, and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Alex, I appreciate it. It was a great time. And, you know, anytime, reach out. Again, people can reach out. If you put you put the links to our show, our Good Dudes Grow show, you know, we, I can answer all the questions they want. I have absolutely no problem. Tune in next time here. My next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.